0: When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. <clears throat> and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe.
1: All right. Thank you, Jeff, for reading that. That will be our passage this morning. Let's go ahead and turn to the Lord in prayer, and we'll study this this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again for gathering us today, specifically on this day where we focus our attention on the truth that Jesus is risen and we're thankful that our hope and our confidence is not a flimsy hope or confidence, but that it is rock solid in what you have given to us in your word. I pray that this truth will go forth very clearly, your word would be seen. I pray that the human elements of this you would just cast aside and allow this to settle on our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, welcome to our service. I know that several of you are visitors this morning or first-time attendees or um, occasional attendees, and we're glad that you can be here. As I prayed and as you've heard already, we are focusing on the most important fact of the Christian faith, and that is the real resurrection of Jesus. Um, this morning, what I want to show you is how the resurrection of Jesus, faith in the resurrection of Jesus, overcomes fear. Uh, There are many fears that folks are wrestling with right now. Uh, Personal fears internally of what you might just be battling on a very individual level. Uh, Fears that something terrible is going to overtake you. Fears that your family might get swallowed up in the world. Fears that you may never be able to achieve your dreams. Fears that your marriage is going to fall apart. Fears that our society is just going to get splintered up even more and, and erode. Well, this passage now brings us to a place where in light of the resurrection of Jesus, we're supposed to ask ourselves this question. How am I responding to life in light of Christ? The Savior being alive, not dead. The passage that Jeff read ends with three women who are actually three of Jesus' closest followers. They arrive at the tomb and they are controlled by fear. And the way that Mark finishes his book, this section at least, is that we are supposed to ask ourselves the question. As I see the characters in the story, as I see these three women, as I see them being controlled by fear, is that me? Am I seized up in life by fear because something is not going the way I expected it? Is my attitude, are my decisions, are my thoughts controlled by fear? And as we'll see this morning, The resurrection of Jesus in the life of a Christian is a powerful force that drives fear out as long as we are believing in the resurrected Savior. So let's just start into the story, and then I have three questions that we want to answer as we move through this passage, and then we'll have a conclusion, and we'll be finished. So verses 1 and 2. Uh, we're introduced to the scene here. The Sabbath was past, and Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So it's the day past Sabbath. Sabbath was Saturday, the day before, and no one could do work on the Sabbath, not even bury people. So now it's early Sunday morning. Jesus had died on Friday. He was crucified on a cross on Friday. Some friends or secret followers, you might call them, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came along, took the body, buried him, but there wasn't a lot of time left in the day and by evening that night, the Sabbath had begun. No work can be done. So these ladies, these three ladies are bringing spices to the tomb And this gift of spices being brought to the tomb is an act of devotion to the one who has died. It would be like showing up at a graveside and planting flowers at a headstone. However, on their way, they know that they are going to face an obstacle if they are going to put spices on the body of Jesus. The tomb had been sealed by a very large stone that had been rolled in front of it. And it's just these three ladies who are going to the tomb as an act of devotion. You remember that Peter and the rest of the disciples, they fled. They knew that in their own strength, these ladies, that they wouldn't be able to get into the tomb to carry out this act of devotion. So the question that they're asking is legitimate. Who is going to roll the stone aside so that we can leave these spices on the body? Mark continues in the story very quickly. He says in verse 4 that when they looked up, so perhaps the tomb was carved out of rock and a hillside. When they looked up, their sight took in something very unexpected. The stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb to seal it shut had been rolled away, taken off to the side. Now, if you were to put yourself in their shoes... This would be like you going to the cemetery, again, bringing flowers and putting it on the headstone, and it's early in the morning, you're the first one to arrive at the cemetery, and as you see the plot that you're heading to, you look up and you see that there is a mound of dirt now next to that gravesite, and a hole in the ground. So it's pretty disturbing. Somebody has been messing with the body. Matthew's gospel gives us a little insight. How was this stone rolled away? Matthew 28, verse 2, it says this, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and he sat on it, as if to say, This tomb belongs to God, and the contents herein belong to God. The angel had done this. This was an act of God. By the time the ladies arrive, the stone is rolled back. The angel has not been or has moved away from the stone. And in Mark's gospel, he tells us that the angel is now sitting inside this tomb on the right side of the tomb. So again, letting your minds put yourself in the situation, you're arriving at the tomb You're seeing the stone rolled away. Curiosity pushes you a little bit further. You poke your head inside the tomb. And there to the right is a man that's sitting on basically like a knee-high bench. And the text tells us that the women are greatly alarmed. It's a strong word that's used to convey the, the shock and the emotions It's the same word that describes Jesus back in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was greatly distressed and troubled looking at his crucifixion ahead. Here's the first words in this section here. The angel says to them, do not be alarmed. Do not be overwhelmed. And then he says two things about Jesus. Number one is this. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and he has risen He is not here. See the place where he laid. They laid him. Two statements that I just want to focus on in two of these questions. Number one is that he was crucified and second that he was risen or has risen. Jesus was crucified We know he was, and we've been following this story as a church for the last several weeks and months of Jesus going into Jerusalem. Jesus had been a celebrity. His ministry had started out in northern Galilee, and he was speaking a message that really resonated with people. His message was, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the Jews had been looking for this kingdom. They had been oppressed for centuries, by world empires. And in the Old Testament, God has said, I'm going to send you a Messiah. I'm going to send a king. And he's going to go to Jerusalem. And so these Jews for centuries have been passing this promise along that God was going to send a Messiah. And here's Jesus up in northern Galilee area proclaiming this message that the kingdom of God is at hand. The long-anticipated freedom that you folks have been longing for is now at hand. And he just said that this is at hand in himself. And so his message was, repent and believe in the good news. So Jesus went from northern Galilee preaching a message that people loved. And secondly, to back up his message, he was performing miracles that people could not deny. We are naturally skeptics. Um, We want proof of everything. And so when somebody makes a strong proclamation about who they are, we want to see that backed up with some kind of rock solid proof. So here was Jesus's proof. The very beginning of Mark, he walks into a synagogue, he's teaching there and a man with the demon comes in and just starts spouting off his mouth. And Jesus just turns to the man with the demon and says, come out of him now. The man is released from the demon and the people in the synagogue are saying his message is spoken with authority and now he's the one who's able to control the demonic world. Right after that, Mark tells us that he meets a man with leprosy. Leprosy was a death wish for people. You can't heal leprosy in the first century. If you had it, you're cut off from society, living in a leper colony, not supposed to be around people at all. And so this leper approaches Jesus and he says, I've heard of what you've done. You can heal me. And Jesus reaches out and does the impossible. He does what no one else has ever done in history. It hasn't been recorded at all. He reaches out and touches a man with leprosy and heals him that way. You say, well, what about Naaman? Okay, nobody touched Naaman. This was Jesus coming to this man, visually being seen by others, and touching this man and healing him of leprosy. Right after that, a cripple is lowered down through a roof. Jesus is in a house. His friends, the cripple's friends, want this man to be in front of Jesus. A crippled man, so a physical, a physical malady. He's lowered down in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, yeah, those are statements. Those are words. Back it up with something. And Jesus is like, okay, just to show you that my words about his sins being forgiven are authoritative, I tell you, young man, rise, take up your bed and walk. And here's this cripple who has been known to be crippled for his life, stands up and walks out of the place. Things like that are happening in Jesus's life as he moves down towards Jerusalem and the crowds are just getting bigger and bigger because they're hearing his message and they're seeing more and more miracles. Right outside of Jerusalem, before he goes into the city, he heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. He's sitting alongside the road. Jesus, son of David, heal me. Jesus walks up to him, heals his eyes. A man by the name of Lazarus was in a tomb. Jesus goes to this tomb in Bethany and raises Lazarus from the dead. So everybody is hyped up about Jesus He comes into Jerusalem and he dies. And everybody is just like, you have got to be kidding me. I think a lot of people thought he was a poser, a fake, a charlatan who had sort of pulled his magic all along the way, gets to Jerusalem and they feel as though they've been swindled, bamboozled. And so they turn on him. Why was Jesus crucified? Was it because he ran out of magic? Was he like a deer that was able to outpace all the wolves until the wolves got smart, formed a pack, backed them into a corner, and tore them apart? Just kind of ran out of smarts? Why was Jesus crucified? Well, Jesus had told his disciples three times We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, that is an authoritative title, that is a kingly title. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will arise. That's Mark 10. Jesus had predicted on three separate accounts, that he's going to Jerusalem to actually die. But why? Why was he crucified? The angel is saying Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Why? Well, just a few verses later, after Jesus' prediction, Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, there's that title again of kingship and royalty, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life As a ransom for many. So, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah with a message and performing miracles, he came with a purpose, and his purpose is I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to die. He's giving up his life as a ransom for many. Now, do you ever think of yourself as a person who needs to be ransomed? We know what a ransom is. A ransom is the payment that is given in order to set somebody free. So what is it that we, what is it that we humans need to be ransomed from? Is it Satan? I mean, he is the enemy. He's the dark one. Is it the world and all of its sin that sort of just swallows us up and tries to choke us out? Do we need to be ransomed from that? No, surprisingly, what we need to be ransomed from is the wrath of God. John chapter three, verse 36 says this, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life But the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 2 verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent, your your hardened, unregretful, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What is it that we need to be ransomed from? Because of our sin against God, a holy, just God, we are deserving of his wrath. We've sinned against a mighty God, the judge of the universe. We stand before him as guilty, and a guilty verdict deserves judgment. It's not that the judge is bad. It's that the judge is actually carrying out justice, which we all long for, don't we? We all long for justice to be carried out and for things to be fair. And here we are standing before God. We've committed sins. And I think that if we would just be honest, we know that we've committed sins. We know that we've hurt people with our selfishness this last week. We know that we've bent the truth and told lies. We know that Inside of us, there's bitterness that rages on and on. There's sin. We have a problem called sin, and that sin is disobedience against God. And so Jesus comes and he sees us standing before our heavenly father, the judge, knowing you need to be ransomed from your place of captivity. And so the text says that Jesus came, lived a perfectly obedient life and offered his life as a gift to us so that we wouldn't have to bear the judgment of sins. He did. As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we saw him on the cross, and one of the sayings on the cross was this, it is finished. And the idea here is that the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins was being poured out on Christ, and when that judgment was completely poured out, and the judge was satisfied, Jesus could cry out that it was finished. So that's why Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified as an act of love to stand in our place and bear the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And here is the angel saying, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? And just briefly... You came into a Christian service this morning. And if you're a non-Christian, you need to know what I just said. I've explained to you portions of the Bible that we are captive under the wrath of God unless we have received the ransom payment of Jesus in our lives as a free gift. That's where we are. And that's why we need Jesus. So Jesus of Nazareth was crucified for you. But that's not the end of the message from the angel. The angel says he has risen. As I mentioned, three times Jesus had predicted that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And each of those three predictions about his death, he said he would rise in three days. So here's the second question. What is the Christian hope of the resurrection? What is the Christian hope of the resurrection? Well, let me give you three hopes, three reasons why we can have hope in the resurrection of Jesus. Number one is this, it is my justification. It is my justification. Justification is a pronouncement that we have been declared righteous. And as you see earlier, we are captive under the wrath of God, knowing that we've committed sin. So you could say that what stands above our head is the label guilty before God. And what we need is a new label. We need a label that says no longer guilty, but that says righteous. And what happens in justification is that when we receive the ransom that Jesus is, when we receive him as Savior, God is saying, okay, you've received Jesus, the innocent one, the righteous one who never sinned. You're receiving him as your Savior. And now, instead of being seen for your sins before me, I'm going to see you through the righteousness of Jesus. And I am declaring you to be just. It's a gift. It's a gift simply to be received because God has shown us love in Jesus. And so the text here is Romans 4 verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. We know that. That's why he was crucified. And he was raised for our justification. So when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, God looked at his death as a ransom payment, and said, I accept it. It is sufficient. The price has been paid. And those who receive this risen Lord are declared as just. So I can say this. I do not have to fear what is going to happen to my eternal soul. The Christian faith says this. There is absolute, rock-solid, confident assurance that I do not have to fear death. I don't have to fear eternal judgment. The Bible says that God has put eternity into all of us, meaning we know that there's something, even as much as we might want to suppress it and say, no, we just die and cease to exist. There's something inside of you that says, but there's more. There's more. And if there's more, what am I supposed to do about it? Here's the rock-solid Christian confidence that we have. Jesus died, he was crucified for you, he rose again for our justification. And those who come to Christ, God has declared just, and they are welcomed into his presence forever and ever. And so Christian, even as you look at this spring, and if you will, the next year between now and the following Easter... You can combat the doubts of salvation with the rock-solid confidence that Jesus is alive. He was risen for your justification. And non-Christian, if you're here, you just need to be hearing this. And if God's at work in your heart saying, man, what are you going to do? You need to recognize that this is what he has spoken and what he has provided for you in Jesus, that you would come to him and believe in him. And at the point of belief, God declares you just, justified. Second reason that we have a hope in the resurrection is simply this. The resurrection signifies God's power in our lives. The resurrection signifies God's power in our lives. Now, what do I mean by God's power? Does the Bible kind of have this hidden message that you're almost like Superman, or like transformers that rise above the humanity level and can do extra special things in life. Not that. At the beginning of Mark, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, the rule and reign of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying those who repent and believe will have the rule and reign of God in their lives. So here we live in a world that has tentacles and traps of sin. We have our own fallen nature. We have so many sinful challenges that are in front of us. And God, through his kingdom power, can lead you through all of the mess that's in life in a way that helps you overcome sin so that you're not a victim to it. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that before Christ, we are spiritually dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. But then God being rich in mercy brings salvation into our lives and Paul prays, I want you to know the power of God. What kind of power? The power that God used in raising Jesus from the dead. And so the hope of the Christian life here." is that the rule and reign of God comes into your life and helps you work through, defeat, sin, and obey God. Let me give you a text. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, there's the resurrection, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, Okay, there's his power, that you might do his will. There's obedience, but notice, here's his power again. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. When you look at that phrase, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, this is the kingdom presence, the rule and reign of God right now in somebody's life where you can look at your life this last week, Christian, and say, how did I avoid that sin? It was Jesus Christ working in us to do that which was pleasing in his sight. And so by faith, we lay hold of this truth that as I go through life, Jesus is alive, the power that God worked in raising him from the dead is the same kind of power that he can work in our lives to overcome sin. God equips Christians with what is needed in order that he might work in and through us that which is pleasing in his sight. So just very practically, God is calling some of you to the next step of obedience. The next step of obedience for some of you seems risky because you've never been in this place of whatever obedience looks like. And you stand there and you balk at it saying, how am I going to do it? And you say, wait a second, that's not the message of the resurrection, The message of the resurrection is, I believe that Jesus is alive. He's my Lord. I'm going to follow him. And as I follow him into this path of obedience, God is going to work inside of me to do what is necessary to obey him. It's a wonderful promise that you have when Jesus is your risen Lord and Savior. Third, closely connected to the two previous points, is that the resurrection of Jesus signifies eternal life. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 14 says, "For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep." Another very familiar passage, First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So here, what we see is the promise that those who are in Christ have eternal life. And in 1 Corinthians 15, that phrase is that Christ is the first fruits. So Chris and I were out for a walk. Well, we walk all the time. And uh, recently, maybe a week ago, maybe a little longer ago, I saw the first yellow, bright yellow daffodil. And it was just a wonderful sign that spring has come, and, and we're walking past this place and, "Ah, oh, there's the daffodils." And um, wouldn't you know? that a few days later even last night while we were walking that same location there's not one daffodil now there's many daffodils many bright yellow daffodils that are blooming right now that first one was the first fruit it shows us what is to come and here in 1 corinthians 15 jesus is the first fruit conquering death, raising from the dead, showing there is life after death. And Paul's point is, for those who are in Christ, he's the first fruit and all of us are coming in his wake. All of us are going to be following him and experiencing eternal life. Two weeks ago, the shooting at the Presbyterian School in Nashville was pretty raw. And when when we think about it it still stings uh, perhaps in part because even that story of the pastor his only daughter was killed so the Presbyterian school has the Presbyterian church the pastor of the Presbyterian church his daughters in the school she was one of the three students that was shot so here's a dad who loses his only daughter When asked whether or not the funeral would be at the church building, which was the same address as the crime scene, the dad said that he refused to let Satan win. That building and that place belonged to Jesus, not the devil. And the question was, how could a grieving, hurting dad say this? Well, this dad says this because he believes in the authority and the power of the risen Savior to resurrect his believing daughter to eternal life. His grief is going to go with him for the rest of his life. This is not going to be like a highlight, delete the grief, and just move on. No, the grief is going to be there for the rest of his life, but his belief in the resurrection gives way to Jesus' promises. Jesus is the first fruit and his daughter is one of the many fruits who will follow in Jesus' train and in his wake. He's believing in the promise that as a father he will someday see his saved daughter as Paul states in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then those who are asleep, those who have died, will come back at Jesus' coming. So grief is accompanied by the power of Of resurrection hope and now we look at that and we say okay I grieve but I grieve as someone who has hope not as those who do not have hope those who do not have hope live in fear but those who grieve who have hope can say man this is hard but I am rock-solid confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and that I'm going to see my loved ones again someday So Christian, as we're looking at the empty tomb, here are three women, and they're responding in fear. But I just want to see us. Here is the risen Jesus who secures my salvation. Here's the risen Jesus who empowers me in life, if you will, for my sanctification. Here's the risen Jesus who guarantees my glorification someday. And then this narrative now just begs the question, and the third question last question of the sermon is this. How will you live in response to the resurrection? How will you live in response to the resurrection? You see in verse 7 here of your text, the angel says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why does Peter stand out? Probably because he's the most Notable goofball in the whole thing. He's the guy that denied Jesus three times. Go and tell his disciples, the ones who have fled in fear, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What's their response? Verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, if you have a Bible that includes footnotes, it suggests that this is where the book of Mark actually ends. It ends with Jesus being resurrected and women being overwhelmed and running away in fear. The book ends, comes to a a stop. And on one hand, you kind of understand the nature of their emotions. You see the women... And like, okay, the last thing that I see about these women is that they go away in fear, not saying anything to anyone. Mark just tells us that story up to that point. And I think to see an empty grave, it would be overwhelming. For them to respond in fear, it kind of makes sense, because their eyes have not seen the resurrected Jesus, and so they're afraid. Now, on the other hand, the passage is telling us the truth. Jesus is alive. They haven't seen him yet, and neither have you. And yet, that's what the women need to believe in that moment. Since he is alive, it's been declared, they really should not be responding with fear. They should be responding with joy and hope. And the reason why Mark ends his book this way is that we're supposed to be asking ourselves, how are we responding to life today knowing that Jesus is alive? What characterizes you? Here was their circumstance. They arrived at the tomb and it was nothing of what they expected. Fear. In a world that's topsy-turvy, you're waking up tomorrow not knowing what you're going to see, how are you responding right now knowing that Jesus is alive in the middle of your circumstance? Are you living in fear? Are you afraid that or angry that all of this sin All of this world, with even its threads of beauty and threads of kindness and threads of enjoyment, that this world, with all of its darkness and sin, is going to have the last word? Are you afraid that disease and death is going to steal your life away? Are you afraid of what happened in the past, that it's permanently going to ruin your future? Maybe you're afraid of something that's a little bit more difficult to put into words. Are you afraid that the resurrection is actually real? You're like, huh? By that I mean, you might be afraid that you have been pouring out your life for a world-based dream that you would have to admit you're living for fulfillment from. And you're believing that this is it. And now you're hearing, I've been living for something that is just going to be done and there's so much more to come. You're telling me that there's more to this story and I've just only been living for like the first paragraph on the first page. Yes, there is so much more to come. And I want to encourage us today to believe as we go into this week, to believe in the full meaning of Christ's resurrection. That you, as a Christian, have been secured by Jesus and declared just. That God's kingdom power, his rule and his reign, the power that he used to resurrect Jesus from the dead, to seat him at his right hand in that place, of authority is now the same kind of power that he is using in your life and afforded you in your life to walk through this life in obedience and joy with him. When you experience the anger of seeing sin run rampant in the world, when you see people shouting at each other in anger and your side is being mocked or scorned, that you would say, I'm going to live with the assurance that the deliverer, Jesus, is alive, and this is not the last word. I'm going to live with the assurance that my loved one who was in Christ, who died, I'm going to see him or her again. I'm going to live with the assurance that when God brings somebody into my life who doesn't know who Jesus is, that I can live with the assurance that Jesus is alive and this message is worth sharing. If our assurance is in the resurrection of Jesus, Mark closes out his book this way, that we should face the fears of life knowing that Jesus is alive and someday he's going to make all things new. This is the hope of the resurrection. Lay hold of the resurrection this week and live with the confidence that Jesus, your Savior, is alive. Let's pray.